Bonjour, and welcome to this podcast, where we share everything you want to know about France and more. I'm Janine Marsh. I'm a Londoner now living in northern France. I'm one of 150 people who live in a tiny village with no shops and no bar, but there are a thousand cows. I write books, publish a free magazine called The Good Life France, and I'm the editor of a website of the same name. I love chatting to you on this podcast about all things French, alongside my podcast partner, Olivier Geoffrey. Bonjour, I'm Olivier, Oli for short, and I am one of those uh, French expats in the UK. There's a few, but I love France very much too, of course. Actually, I've never felt so close to my uh, native country since I left it. Is that okay, Dr. Janine? <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> Or do I need to do something about it? I don't know, no. maybe, not sure. But this podcast is definitely a nice therapy for me, so uh, I think I'm okay. Uh, in the meantime, Janine, what are we going to be talking about today? A bit of therapy for you, I think, Ollie, because today we're going to be talking about travel. Oh, yes. Yeah, travel in France, of course. And in this episode, we're going to focus on some of the most popular places to visit, as well as some of the less well-known places. The Good Life France podcast. Everything you want to know about France and more with Janine Marsh and Olivier Geoffrey. So, you know, France is the most popular tourist destination in the world and beyond. I'm very proud that so many people love to visit my country and it's been having that uh, prestigious title forever, it seems. Maybe I'm a bit biased, but although all countries are beautiful, I believe that France has um, something more that certain je ne sais quoi you people are crazy about. It's true. Ollie, did you just say the most popular tourist destination in the world and beyond? Do you know a secret <laughs> that the rest of us don't know? <laughs> yeah, I have studies for, um, for the universe. I will share them with you uh, a bit later on. <laughs> I love that. And, and yes, you're right. Around 90 million people visit France each year. I mean, that's an astonishing number, isn't it? More people than actually live in France visit France. And every now and again, France is number two for visitors, but not very often. So where do they all go? Paris, of course, it is the most popular tourist city destination of the world. Again, I think we have to start a new, um, you know, Guinness Book of Records with just France in it, the Livre des Records of France. <laughs> You're right. Yes. Paris gets around 30 million visitors each year. And that includes you and me. I love Paris. Ollie, what's your favorite thing to do in Paris? Oh, no. Oh, my God. Um, the number one question Parisians don't want to answer. It's so difficult, you know. Uh, I would say a mix of things. Um, walking in the historic areas of Paris by night, definitely, with some stops in cafes so I can do some uh, people watching. But uh, I also love uh, cycling near the River Seine, especially in the summer month when Paris is a bit quieter. Or um, discovering new bars with friends as well. There's so many things, Janine. Please don't ask me that question again. <laughs> I think it's a brilliant question myself. and But I do know how you feel. I mean, I have so many favourites too. Obviously, the Eiffel Tower and the Musée d'Orsay, which is a museum in a former train station. And it has the most wonderful collection of Impressionist art, Art Nouveau furniture. There are entire rooms complete with wood floors and wood panelled walls. And it also has a really gorgeous restaurant. And if you're into photography, there's a grand old station clock. It's enormous, massive. I think it's about 20 feet high. And it looks out over the River Seine and the Louvre Palace. It's a really good place to take a photo, selfie or otherwise. 
I really love to wander in Montmartre and pop into the little museum in Rue Courteau where Renoir once lived. And there's a secret vineyard next door. And there's also strolling the boulevards, the Grand Boulevards, sipping hot chocolate while you listen to the church bells ring at Notre Dame, peeking into the past in the Latin Quarter. There's just so much to love. And we're definitely going to have to do a Paris episode soon. Yes. But I think that one of the most memorable things for me is uh, Saint-Chapelle, which is a small church, older than Notre Dame. It's next to the conciergerie building where Marie Antoinette was imprisoned before losing her head. And to me, I stand in this church and I find it astonishing to know that 800 years ago, King Louis IX sat here looking at the glorious stained windows, just like I am. There are 15 of them. They're 15 metres high. It's about 48 feet. And they depict 1,113, yes, 1,113 scenes from the Bible. When the sun shines through them, it's absolutely mesmerizing, like standing in a jewel box. And it's not a working church. In the evenings, classical music performance is held there. And it's quite magical when you listen to Handel or Vivaldi. The stained glass windows are lit from the inside. There are gilded angels popping out of the wall, glorious artwork that covers every inch of this incredible building. And that's the thing about Paris. Uh, there are the really well-known parts, but uh, there are also the many uh, secret parts. And you can see the city's past right before your eyes. The great uh, Gothic churches, uh, the medieval buildings, Renaissance, Baroque, Haussmannian, Belle Époque, Art Nouveau and uh, Contemporary. There is something to please uh, everyone. One piece of advice, look for the passage, the passages, covered or not. We'll talk about them a bit later on. Uh, they're unique uh, and for some of them really charming. It's worthwhile, really. I totally agree. And if you want a secret place to visit in Paris, once you've been up the Eiffel Tower and done the Arc de Triomphe and the Louvre and all the other amazing big ticket places, then discover secret Paris quirky museums and hidden ateliers, the workshops of artisans and artists like Lubin Perfumerie. It was actually opened by Pierre-Francois Lubin, who was trained from the age of 10, started young in those days, by Queen Marie Antoinette's favourite parfumier. And he used to make beauty products for the Queen. And his name was Jean-Louis Fargion, and he supplied her with perfume as well. And Lubin created a pair of scented gloves for the Queen, using her favourite hyacinths and violets, musk and carnations. And when the Queen was in prison at the conciergerie near the Louvre, Lubin would take her little parcels with her favourite toiletries. Later, Empress Josephine Bonaparte used to hang out at Lubin's, and the shop is still there. And there's also Patisserie Store, which is on Rue Montegoy. It's the oldest cake shop in Paris. I mean, that's incredible. And it opened in 1730. It's entirely possible, I think, that Marie Antoinette may have indulged there. She really liked cake and the shop was opened by her father-in-law's pastry chef. And there are also shops where Picasso, Renoir and Degas used to shop for their art surprise. I mean, there's just so many amazing places in Paris. Yeah, it's true. It's endless. And uh, there are also the shopping galleries like uh, Galerie Vivienne. They were created uh, around 200 years ago and they are full of boutiques uh, and cafes and look just uh, as they did all those years ago. The uh, architecture is magnifique. That's one of the covered passages I was talking about uh, earlier. I know that passage and it's absolutely stunning. Yes, definitely not to be missed. And when we talk of great architecture, I think there's one place that we just cannot go without mentioning, which is Mont Saint-Michel. 
the island with an abbey off the coast of Normandy, right on the border with Brittany. In fact, it's so close that a lot of times people think it is Brittany. Do you know the legend of how it was built? No. No. Uh, it's said that in uh, 708, uh, Aubert, the Bishop of Avranches, dreamt that he had an encounter with um, the Archangel Michael, who uh, instructed him to build a church on the uh, little island. But the bishop took uh, no notice. Three times the Archangel instructed him to uh, build the church. And finally, it is said he burned a hole in the bishop's skull to drive home the merits of obedience. Ouch. And guess what? The bishop built the church. Crazy story. Wow. Actually, I think I would build the church as well if he stuck his finger in my head yeah. <laughs> and burnt me. But the abbey you see today is not the same one that the abbot built. The, another one was built over the top. And this year, 2023, is the thousandth anniversary of the nave being built. Isn't that incredible? The year 1023, way before William the Conqueror went to England, builders completed the creation of the Romanist nave. That is astonishing, you know, to stand there and know these things. It really gives me goosebumps. I took my dad there once and he didn't want to go. He moaned the whole way and he was like, oh, another bloody monument. Francis, <laughs> he was, he's like, Francis, full of them. And it's true, it is full of them. But I made him go there. He was moaning the whole way. And then when we were about a couple of miles away, we could see it looming on the horizon, topped by a golden angel. And Victor Hugo, the great French playwright and writer, said, It's like a pyramid in the sea. He was captivated by it, and so was my dad. Well, it captivates a lot of people, actually. <laughs> Three million people visit this island every year, and widely so. It's unique. If you want to see it without feeling a bit like uh, a sardine in a tin, go out of uh, peak season, please, not in July or August, and get there early before the tour uh, coaches arrive, or later in the evening when they depart. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> yes, That is absolutely right. It does get really busy. And also, don't forget to wear comfortable shoes because the medieval streets are seriously cobbled. And also, you may want to eat at Mer Poulard restaurant, which is a very famous restaurant where they cook omelettes, but they're very expensive. They're made to the same secret recipe and cooked on an open fire in front of customers, just as they have been since 1888. And it's a taste that's been loved by many, including the great Ernest Hemingway and Marilyn Monroe. But for me, the best thing is to just wander the little streets that wrap around the island and lead to the abbey. You should be aware it's a very steep climb, some 350 steps. When I went, there were a couple of paramedics stationed halfway up the stairs. And I was climbing with my husband and, my, and he said, like, oh, maybe there's paramedics at the top of the stairs as well, because, you know, it really is steep, but it's worth the effort to get to the top. Don't even try to do it if you've got a heart problem or a medical issue. We left my dad in a restaurant eating cheese because he had had a heart attack a couple of years before and he was a heavy smoker as well. So we were like, Dad, you can't come with us. Stay there. But when we reached the top, we stood up there and looked out through those grand old stone arched windows over the sea and the land. It's one of those moments that you just don't ever forget. And even though my dad didn't get to see it when we left, he just said, this is one of those places that everyone ought to see before they die. So you're right, Ollie. I went in June and it wasn't too crowded at all. We were there for the D-Day anniversary, which my dad wanted to go to. In fact, That's one of three times I only ever saw my dad cry was when we went to the American cemetery at Colville-sur-Mer. It was so poignant. But if you go in July and August, it gets really packed. 
Yes, it does. Yeah. Those months are what we call the Grand Vacances in France, the big holidays. It's when everyone wants to take their holiday and they are even split into two tribes. Those who tend to travel in July, juillet in French, are called the juilletistes. Juilletistes, okay? And those who take their holidays in August, août in French, are called the aoussiens. Aoussiens. A bit difficult to remember, but uh, we'll get there. It's not just difficult to remember, it's really difficult to say. <laughs> yes, also. <laughs> I am a juilletiste. I'm a July person, although I don't really go on holiday that much because I travel for work. So, but I do go in July to take a working tour of France. That's what I tell my husband anyway. It's work. And then uh, I visit the gorgeous lavender fields in Vaucluse or I take a cruise on the Rhone Canal. By the way, that trip is coming up in the spring issue of the Good Life France magazine. But really, it's work. Yeah, of course it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, in the past, July was seen as more chic in a way, when those who had a bit more flexibility to choose their holiday dates could uh, take time off. Then the factories would close in August, and so uh, that's when the working class went on holiday. If you're travelling in France, especially the south, in those months, then do try to avoid driving because that's when you get the worst traffic jams in France. There is a term in French called chasse coisse, which is originally a ballroom dancing term, means step together. But in this context, it means the uh, traffic jams generated by the French all taking time out in July and August. And there's actually a new term. Did you know this, Ollie? There's a new term for people who go on holiday in September, les septembristes. Oh, is no. that right? Yeah, I didn't yeah. know. Septembristes, yeah, okay. I didn't know. <laughs> It's true. And it's mainly their grandparents, the mummies and pappies who mm, okay. are babysitters in the summer months. And then they all run away at the end of August. <laughs> and if you go to Mont-Saint-Michel, but you want to visit a less crowded, more secret place afterwards, maybe the marine train will interest you. It's a little tourist train which runs around the Mont-Saint-Michel Bay. It takes you on a two-hour guided tour on land and in the shallow waters as well. And you'll discover the local fishing culture and get a really unique view of the island. It's a great activity. That's a brilliant tip, Ollie. I'm definitely going to do that next time. Now, talking of the most popular attractions in France, we have to talk about the Palace of Versailles. You can take a train from Paris to Versailles. It's quite easy to get to. And it's astonishing when you get there to look at it and then think this was a hunting lodge until Louis XIV decided to renovate and then some. His aim was very much, look at me, I am the greatest. I am the greatest man in the world. Only a greatest man in the world could have a home as beautiful as this. So in the mid-1600s, the simple, by royal standards at least, hunting lodge became the most luxurious home in the world. Wasn't exactly cosy, though. Several hundred people were squeezed in. Big as it was, that's still a huge amount of people that they squeezed in there. And they were the most important aristocrats of France, who the king required to be on site so that he could basically keep an eye on them. I, pretty much everything literally glistens. There's so much gold involved, from the gates to the ceilings, the walls, the door fittings and the mirrors. And that's not it. Then there's the gardens of the palace as well. The palace was built on swamp land and uh, the swamps had to be drained and then the area was filled with soil and stone so that the grand gardens could be created. And the king wanted fountains, lots of fountains, obviously he did, but there was no river nearby, so underground and aerial aqueducts were built 
to bring water in. They pumped it from the river Seine, but it was still hard to keep the fountains flowing. So basically, the fountain operators used to just turn the fountains on when the king went by. Everyone else could go without. Wow. He was such a control freak, you know. Well, he was a lot of a control freak. Under his rule, etiquette became everything. There were dress codes for every event even walking in the garden. And if you didn't have the right kit, you could rent it at the entrance to the gardens. You can't do that now, but I love that idea. And talking of walking, Versailles itself is a fabulous town for a walk. There are glorious old stone mansions. The King's Vegetable Garden is close by, which for me is a must-see. Louis had a brilliant gardener who innovated and experimented and was even able to grow tropical fruit in the north of France and coffee beans. And Louis used to take his guests there and boast about it, like, look what I've done, even though he didn't do anything at all. And for another less well-known part of your visit to Versailles, head to the market. It's one of the best I've ever been to. There are a couple of markets, actually, but the one I really love is called Marché Notre-Dame, and it's been there since the 1600s. It has beautiful stone halls that were built hundreds of years ago, like miniature mansions for your fruit and veg. It's really lively, really lovely. It's open daily, except Monday, and there's an open-air market which spreads out over a huge square on Tuesday, Friday, and Saturday mornings. Okay, now a bit of a change in the type of uh, attraction that is uh, very popular in France. Disneyland Paris. Not very French, but uh, French people love it too. Have you ever been, Janine? I have. I've been twice. I had to go twice because the first time I went, I took my kids and all the characters were on strike. <laughs> so it's so <laughs> French. Typical. I know, it's crazy, huh? So we had to go back because the kids really wanted to see Mickey Mouse. Uh, well, everyone probably knows uh, a lot about the Disney park, so I won't uh, say too much, but it's the most uh, visited theme park in Europe, and it's easy to reach from uh, central Paris. And of course, there is a Sleeping Beauty castle, and we love castles. Oh, we all love castles. And talking of castles, let's head to the Loire Valley, known as the Valley of the Kings in France, because there are so many castles. Chenonceau, Chambord, Villandry, Ousset, Azé-le-Rideau, Chinon, Loche, Blois, Amboise. We're going to have to do a Loire Valley podcast one of these days, Ollie. There's just too many to talk about here. Yeah, but I'll put that on the list. I know. But do you know the number one castle in the Loire Valley? Chambord. It has to be. That's the biggest of them all. And some say the best as well. Yeah, you're right. Chambord gets around one million visitors a year, but it never really feels crowded because it's so huge. And this was another one of those, look at me, I am the best king in the world scenarios, although it was about 150 years or so before Louis. This was King Francois I, who was known as the Renaissance King. He spent so much money on this place. It was an obsession and he pretty much had to give up everything else to get this done, including, it said, releasing his sons from prison because they'd been captured by his enemy and, and he didn't have enough money to ransom them. And yet, despite this, all this money, he only spent 40 nights here. And it was so big, it was pretty much uninhabitable. 426 rooms, 83 staircases, and to keep it warm, 282 fireplaces, but it didn't keep it warm. And that's why it was largely uninhabitable. It was cold. It's an amazing place to visit with gorgeous gardens and a little village at the bottom with great shops where you can buy a chambord, the liqueur and local biscuits and treats. I really love this castle, but then I love them all, really. <laughs> and if you want to visit uh, somewhere close by, that's a little less known. There's so much in the area anyway. 
Blois, the town. Blois is 20 minutes away and there is uh, another fabulous castle there. Plus, in the town, there is a museum of magic. And if you go a little further to the pretty town of Amboise, there are two castles as well. One lived in by the kings, including Francis I, and the other one lived in by Leonardo da Vinci, who traveled here from Italy on a donkey carrying the Mona Lisa painting to work for Francis I. How silly donkey is that, really? It's true. He did actually travel over the Alps, I think with one servant carrying all of his possessions to come and work for Francis I. <laughs> and yes, he did have the astonishingly expensive Mona Lisa wrapped up in a, a little basket <laughs> on the side of the donkey. Did you know that Francis I used to keep the painting in his bathroom? God, I just love that, that he used to, you know, sit in the bath and look at that painting and think, oh, it's so beautiful. It's in the Louvre now, of course, the world's most visited museum and a former royal palace. And it's not now, in the bathroom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Let's head outside for some fresh air and one of the most alluring roamers in the world, Lavender. Provence is famous for its beautiful hilltop villages, historic cities like Avignon, when the popes once lived, and for its lavender fields. It's a site that really makes your soul soar from around mid-June to the start of August. Miles of purple lavender and the scent fills the air. It's a must-see. And the best lavender fields are in the department of Vaucluse. And they smell so nice. Uh, they surround some of the little towns and sit next to uh, apricot, cherry and uh, olive orchards. And one of my favorite places is So, which is where some of the most beautiful lavender fields can be found. I agree. I've stood there many times looking out over the lavender fields. It's gorgeous. Do you know where lavender comes from, Ollie? Um, no, I don't. I know it's uh, cultivated for uh, about 150 years and that it's from the same family of plants as mint. But uh, that's all I know, really. Well, there is a legend that the lavender in Provence comes from the tears of a blue-eyed fairy called Lavandula. Ooh. She was flying, yeah, she was flying around France like you do, looking for somewhere special to call home. And she had a notebook, and she was making drawings of the places she liked the look of. This really is a legend, and she was really proud of her drawings. But when she saw the page with Provence and the Luberon area in Vaucluse, it looked so dry that it made her sad, and she cried purple tears from her big purple eyes. And the tears stained the book, and she tried to wipe them away, and it stained the whole page violet. So she coloured the sky a beautiful shade of blue so that people wouldn't notice her mistake. And ever since, the lavender has grown in Provence. It sounds like a bedtime story. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's, I believe it. <laughs> Me too. Well, we've only covered a fraction of the most popular places to visit in France in this episode, but we'll do another travel episode soon because now it's time for the Q&A part of the show. Got a question about France? Well, ask the experts. We reply to you in each episode. And... We do it for free. So, Janine, what is today's question? Well, since we're on the topic of travel, I went for a travel question. And in fact, before I start, thank you so much to everyone for all the questions coming in. Just keep them coming. Uh, some I am answering directly when people email me because they might be a little bit specific or urgent. But the rest we're going to get through over time. Don't forget to email me through the contact form at www.thegoodlifefrance.com. But today's question is from Anne Barber, who lives in Ottawa, Canada. And she says, 
I'm going to Paris in May. It's my first time and I want to see as much of Paris as I can. But I also want to do one day trip to see something different. Where should I go? And it's a really hard question because from Paris, you can go to so many places. You can go to Tours in the Loire Valley, which is about an hour and a half by train, or Reims, which the French call, or Anse, which I find so hard to say, in Champagne, which is about an hour by train, or Lille, which is about 50 minutes in the north. I mean, there's just so many places you can get to really easily from Paris and get back in time for dinner the same day. And it really a contrast to the capital. So, Oli, <laughs> don't ask, but what do you think? <laughs> that question again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, it really depends on what uh, you want to see. Castles, churches, uh, abbeys, or maybe uh, countryside, or all of them. About uh, an hour and 20 minutes southeast of Paris is a medieval town called Provins. It's surrounded by a glorious countryside. The town is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It has so many monuments, uh, castle ruins, uh, half-timbered houses, uh, remparts in French, <laughs> uh, people dressed in uh, medieval costume putting on shows. It's, uh, it's really extraordinary. It's a nice town to visit. I totally agree. And you know what? I'm going there in May too. So I may see you there, Anne. Great choice, Oli. I think Rovan, as you say, we say province because we're English speakers. <laughs> I know it's terrible. It makes you laugh, doesn't it? But it's a really sort of pickled in the past gem of a place. And it isn't that far from Paris. And it pretty much offers everything, you know, the castle, the ramparts, the countryside monuments. Get, check it out. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please feel free to share it. This is the Good Life France podcast. Oh là là, le podcast The Good Life France. I have very good news for you people. You absolutely need to tune in for the next episode again. We'll be talking, wait for it. Ta -ta -ta. Cheese, yes, French cheese, of course. A whole episode of uh, fun facts, history and weird cheese things. We come on merit if you miss it. Oh, Boom. God, that's, that's so cheesy. But I really love it, Oli. Yes, <laughs> we cannot bear it. We come on bear it if you miss the next episode. You can find me in the meantime at thegoodlifefrance.com where there are thousands of articles about France and all things French from culture to gastronomy, history and heaps more. And on the website, you can sign up for the podcast so you never miss another issue. And for our free magazine, The Good Life France, which you'll find at magazine.thegoodlifefrance.com. And you can find me at parischanson.fr, where I play the classic and French music you love 24 hours a day. Give Ollie a listen. It's brilliant. Meanwhile, it's au revoir from me. And goodbye from me. Speak to you soon. The Good Life France podcast. Available on all podcast platforms, on thegoodlifefrance.com and on parischanson.fr.